This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Bronwyn Milkins. Hello, mental workers, and welcome back to the podcast. Did you know that social media is a big thing? You've probably heard of it, you've seen it. There's this thing called Facebook and Twitter. I think it's X now, actually. And then Instagram and the TikTok. And, you know, a question I've had to myself is, can I actually have a personality on social media? Like, how much of myself do I have to hide as a psychologist? Does my registration follow me wherever I go? Here to help us unpack these questions is Sarah O'Doherty. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Bronwyn. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you going? I am good. I'm ready to get stuck into it. Excellent. Maybe just remind listeners of who you are, Sarah. So I am one of the directors of the Australian Association of Psychologists, and I am also a private practice owner in Sydney. Um, My practice is called Mindscape Psychology. So follow us on the socials. We are at Mindscape Psychology on all of the socials. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And so... Why is this of relevance to early career psychologists, do you think? There has been so much discussion in all of the groups that I happen to be on, particularly on Facebook, because I am late millennial, oh, sorry, early millennial, uh, late Gen X. Um, And so that sort of seems to be the place where people of my age tend to go. And I found that there has been huge amounts of discussion in amongst psychologist groups about things like boundaries and really tricky and sticky situations where it tends to be um, questions around um, how much you can share and privacy settings and dual relationships and all of those sorts of things. So this is definitely a topic that I've encountered quite a bit. What advice have you received about social media, like as a psychologist? Yeah, so very, very early on in my career, I think even before social media became such a big thing, we were basically told and it was drummed into us that our registration as a psychologist follows us wherever we go. And so if we were to do things that were outside of uh, the psychology profession, so let's say, for instance, you had a side hustle or if you were heavily involved in different sorts of activities in different communities, then this would Uh, present an issue for you if you weren't careful in navigating boundaries because if you were to present as something that wasn't maybe seen as being um, something of benefit to the psychology community or presented in any way that could potentially be a detriment to the psychology profession or community, then that would be reflective of who you were in your registration. Okay, so let's say that I'm a psychologist and I have a carpentry side hustle and I make delightful wooden toys for children. That one wouldn't be too bad, right? You wouldn't think so, but I guess it's these sorts of things where, you know, it becomes a bit it becomes a bit tricky when we're involved in things like clubs or um, even being a parent of children involved in community groups and clubs. Um, I know, for instance, when I've done um, some work with clients who are polyamorous or in kink communities, non-monogamy communities, um, and psychologists have disclosed to them that they are also in uh, polyamory communities or in kink communities. Um, I've been aware of reports being made of psychologists potentially overstepping these sorts of boundaries. So where the boundaries apply for things where it can be really tricky, the thinking really behind it was anything needs to be highly protected and boundaried. So the carpentry example that you just mentioned might seem kind of fine or kind of ambiguous, but it's sort of like if a rule if a rule applies in one area, then a rule probably needed to apply in all areas. Hmm. I guess, but that would significantly affect my carpentry business. <laughs> it absolutely would. Like, let's say like the main way I get that out is through Facebook and social media. 
So I guess, Sarah, like, okay, the advice that I received around social media during my master's and supervised practice was essentially lock it down. Everything needs to be on privacy settings that are ultra high, never disclose any client information. You shouldn't be able to guess who the client is, which I think is reasonable. Assume anything you post could go to be made public. So never assume even if you're in a private group that that information is going to remain private. That's correct. And it was also be very careful about your image. So one of the pieces of advice that I got was like, make sure your profile pictures are appropriate, professionally appropriate. And that means kind of beige and neutral, essentially. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm recalling the episode where um, I think we were talking about appearance and, you know, what does professional look like? And so that means, you know, what happens if you're posting selfies of a brand new hair color or hairstyle? Um, And so I think that there is, there are so many rules that seem to be made as a knee-jerk reaction to things that don't really quite match the intention of why that rule might be in place or what the what what we're actually trying to safe keep or, or safeguard here. Yeah, I just find it really confusing. And I think this is a source of anxiety for early career psychologists. And we are just like, okay, well, I better just, you know, keep everything locked down. I can't have a personality on social media. So do you think this is true, Sarah? Honestly, I don't know if it matters whether or not I think it's true. Okay. I think that the the difficulty here is that we have the fear of God slash Arthur yeah. drummed into I mean, us. Yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, and at the end of the day, you know, we as as regulated health professionals, we could face things like complaints being made. And the advice really from APRA and our professional bodies like the AAPI um, and the APS is lock it down, keep it tight, and try to make sure that you are mitigating any risk so that you're not going to be on the receiving end of either vexatious complaints or other sorts of reports or notifications being made to APRA. So it's kind of a better be safe than sorry approach. It is a little bit. And on this, at the same time, it does feel like it really limits who we can be and what we can do um, in terms of what our personality is or what our interests are. Um, so I'll give you an example. Um, we were um, looking at employing, we're constantly looking at employing at our practice. And one of the uh, people who we were going to be employing, who actually wasn't a psychologist, they were um, an allied health professional who happened not to be um, covered under APRA. Um, had a very public social media profile where they were in an exercise profession. So they had a side hustle as an exercise profession and a lot of their public profile pictures were in exercise gear. And this was absolutely completely fine in terms of what their professional bodies recommended. However, there were a lot of opera concerns when we were reviewing it. And so I think that there is a standard or there is some sort of expectation of um, what is normal for a psychologist and what might be acceptable in other professions. And that becomes, again, another really tricky line to tread. What's the concern there from an upper perspective of the person being in their fitness gear? Because I guess that's their work uniform in a way. I think it's about bringing a profession into disrepute. And the idea of what constitutes professional in one profession versus another might seem completely different. So this is about someone's professional uniform might be their sports equipment gear that they're wearing. Whereas for instance, showing cleavage or more skin than average when you are associated with vulnerable clients of a mental health nature within a private practice setting might show something different. So even though this person wasn't a psychologist, there could have potentially been complaints made to my practice when I flagged this with um, some of my colleagues and discussed it with them. 
So I'm thinking about that from an ethics perspective and I'm like, okay, let's say we have a vulnerable client who I guess finds it difficult to understand the nature of the therapeutic relationship and they think it's more personal than than it actually is. And let's say that a person is displaying, I guess, photos which might indicate that maybe they enjoy the sexualized nature of their body or anything like that, whatever, great, good for them. Um, but maybe a vulnerable person might think that the relationship is more personal. Is that kind of what we're thinking? I think so. And the idea that if we were seeing, because I tend to see quite a lot of younger um, adolescents and young adults in my practice, if they had, for instance, seen any of these pictures or their parents had and the parents had deemed it inappropriate because this person represents a particular practice or because this person is working within the mental health sphere, then it could be a representation of professionalism or not professionalism within that sphere. And so it is really hard for either a client who might be vulnerable or someone who might be a lay person who doesn't understand the ethics behind it to make those sorts of distinctions. So for me hearing this as an early career psychologist, I'm just like, wow, this is way too hard then. I'm just going to buckle it down then again. Like I feel like it comes back to like I can't do anything on social media, but perhaps I'm being too defeatist. Like are there areas where it could be appropriate where I I don't bring the profession into disrepute? Do you know what? I don't actually know where the answer to that question is. And I think that that's the ultimate difficulty here, Bron, because none of us know. And yeah. at the end of the day, none of us are going to know. And the, the people who actually make these sorts of decisions are not us. So the people who would decide to make a complaint or a vexatious complaint are not us. They would be potentially random members of the public or a client or a family member of a client or a colleague colleague, for instance, and they might make these sorts of complaints. And then it is people who are in that bureaucratic realm of opera who are then going to decide whether or not we fit the standard or not. And I think the difficulty here is, it comes back to this fear of God, the idea is play it safe. And I'm not okay with that. I'm not a fan of of this idea of playing it safe. I do think that, and I will always advocate for people being able to express themselves in ways that they want to. And psychologists are human. We're allowed to have hobbies and interests and post selfies in, you know, a beach location and, and you might be wearing a swimsuit or whatever it is, right? And I think that there are these archaic judgment calls that are being made that dehumanize us and box us into some sort of this professional box that we're not allowed to escape from. So I don't think I have an answer to your question. And I think that the question itself is the aggravating bit here. Um, And so I think that we just need to be continuing to have these sorts of conversations and figure out what are the boundaries and let's keep pushing them. I agree because it does sound like the boundaries are too tight knit. So it's like if someone even gets a whiff that this could potentially be seen as breaching client confidentiality, even though you haven't given any identifying details, it's generic Mr. X off the street. I guess if someone made a complaint about that, it just seems like it's very, very narrow and that's what makes us very scared and there's this uncertainty about what is complainable versus not. And really they can put in a complaint and then we have to be subject to that. Absolutely. And I actually think it's not that the boundaries are, the boundaries end up being too tight, but in my view, it's because the rules are too vague. Okay. There aren't enough, there's not enough clarity in the rules. You know, if there was a standardized, I don't know, dress code, um, and people were saying, you know, you couldn't wear a certain thing whilst doing your job or you, I mean, I wouldn't like that cause that sounds horrific, but at least then you would know what the rule is at the moment. It is interpretable by anyone and anyone can say, this is what I think you have done to breach this really vague idea of bringing the profession into disrepute. 
I agree because I am looking at the APRA policy on social media. So it's how to meet your obligations under national law. And there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight examples. Now, they're, okay. they're pretty good examples, but I don't think they cover the breadth of what we need to see examples of, particularly psychologists. So there's no example with a psychologist, for instance, in any of these examples. There's a few nurses, a few Chinese medical practitioner, but I guess you could apply it to a psychologist, but there's nothing really specific. And I agree that adds to the vagueness of it. And I think also that psychologists, we're in such a unique position because we do develop really quite intimate and close and long-term often relationships with our clients. We have this this very um, deep connection often with our clients. And as we know, rapport is such a massive part of the therapy that we do. And so what that means is we are going to be privy to a lot of that person's life. And if we are also living in the same area that we work and so therefore can bump into our clients or we happen to use the same platforms that they use and so therefore, you know, they are going to see our public personas probably or at least our um, our practice personas if we have those online, then there can be that that opening up of those boundaries. And I think that that's what makes it really tricky. So I think really the rules and the laws and the guidelines, they're not really in step with what is currently happening on the ground for psychologists. I say that because, okay, one common example that I hear of floated about in the groups is what if I've got a dating profile and then a client has a dating profile on the same platform? Like I'm allowed to have a, a dating life as a psychologist, but of course oh, that'd be never date ever yeah. again. You know, clearly I'm just going to be celibate. celibate. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's option one, be celibate for the oh. rest of my life, like whatever. Oh. Um, option two, I can date and then there are risks associated with that. But I would love to see an example of an appropriate way to handle this under the national law. Yes. Yeah. That's basically it. Yeah. You know? and, and I think that there there isn't, because life is so complex and as humans we are so complex and the, the laws, guidelines and regulations are so vague, it's basically a catch-all to say anything that could be outside of your box as a psychologist could be construed as you are not presenting in a professional psychologist kind of way. And that's, I think, the difficulty because it becomes a catch-all. So what do we think of, there's been a rise in like TikTok therapists and some of them um, I'm aware of therapists that aren't regulated by a body, but what would we think of psychologists who wanted to be a TikTok therapist? Would that be cool or not? Honestly, I think that there are, and I, I'm I'm personally very risk averse. Yeah, uh, I know that sounds really odd because I'm, I'm I'm a very out there kind of person. But at the end of the day, I like knowing what the rules are, and if the rules are very clearly stated that we can't be going out there giving therapy to broad people, gen generic people, um, we we can't really be doing this style of public therapy, then I'm kind of like, well, maybe we shouldn't really be doing that so much. On the other hand, though, I think that there are so many really wonderful accounts of um, Instagram therapists and TikTok therapists who really do stick within the guidelines and in their ethical bounds. And I think that there are definitely a lot of really good examples that the problem is with these sort of social media platforms is that it's really hard to discern who is who and what is what. If I was a consumer, I'd be so confused. Exactly. So exactly. This comes to in APRA's policy. I'll just read out this one. It's got public health messages and this is what the section says. While you may hold personal beliefs about the efficacy of or safety of some public health initiatives, you must make sure that any comments you make on social media are consistent with the code standards and guidelines of your profession and do not contradict or counter public health campaigns or messaging. I have a feeling this one came up around COVID. This was a big one around yeah. COVID. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I feel like this could also apply 
apply to psychologists who get into the TikTok or the Instagram. It's like, make sure that you've read the codes and standards. Make sure that what you're saying is evidence-based and not contrary to public health messaging. Is that is that about it? Basically. And I think that there are, again, there's a range of ways of going about doing this. You know, I think that there, I mean, one of the really great examples I can think of is Dr. Christy Summer, who is up in Queensland. Um, and she has a PhD in, I think it's perinatal or early childhood development. And she's constantly talking about, you know, this wonderful new research, all of the things that she talks about is really evidence-based. She quotes studies in her Instagram reels. Everything comes back to being um, evidence-based and about that public health promotion um, that she's she's really interested in. But I think that there would be, again, a bit of a crossover between what is her role as a professional and also a an Instagram reel where she's doing this, but she's also, you know, folding her kids washing or, you know, it's TikToks that are filmed uh, within private spaces within the home. And I think that there is a lot of, again, that really kind of potential um, for seeing, seeing something that could be presented as personal, but within a public or professional sphere which I think, again, is really kind of treading that boundary. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. So with early career psychs who really do want to have a personality, I mean, like for early career psychs, like social media, if you think of like millennials and Gen Zers, it's just a part of life. Part of life. Yeah. And so what are we recommending for them to do? Like, are they just going to lock everything down or do they get advice? I wish I had an answer. One of the things that I think is really um, beneficial that I've had to do that I think is is a really important thing for me personally is all of my personal social media stuff is locked down. So I'm really, really super choosy about what kinds of stuff I make public and how I enter into online spaces so if I'm entering into online groups, um, I'm a moderator on a psychologist's Facebook group. Um, I'm also a fairly public figure as part of the um, AAPI. Um, when I'm entering into public spaces, including online spaces, I think there needs to be a really deliberate and conscious choice about how you're presenting and what you're presenting. And there are also some things that I think are just, for me, they're sacred. You know, I'm not going to publicly post images of my kids or names of my kids, for instance. There are, I, I, I work two suburbs away from where I live. So there's a lot of crossover and potential crossover um, with where I live and where I go about my day and where my clients live and where they go about their days. And so when I'm choosing what to disclose and you have to be super choosy about what you disclose, it really has to be for a purpose. And I think I've carried that over generally pretty successfully, I think, okay. into my online world. Okay. So you feel like you're navigating this pretty well now? I think so, but I think it comes back to that rule of, you know, if you're in session, I know, you know, when you talk about things like self-disclosure in session, which is another really tricky topic um, to talk about, it really has to be about why you're choosing to disclose these sorts of things and is it beneficial or therapeutically necessary, is it clinically necessary within that session um, and is it for the purposes of supporting that client or are you just wanting to self-disclose for the purposes of self-disclosing? And I think if you take that rule outside of the therapy space and into online spaces, again, it's about self-disclosure. Whenever we're putting anything online, it is really about self-disclosure. What is the purposes of putting it out there? Who is likely to see it? And what would be the repercussions of potential audience members who I might not want to see that or know that information about me? So we really are carrying, I see it as like a heavy burden actually of being psychologists in public spaces and having to foresee the potential consequences of our actions on 
the profession and on ourselves and how that might be perceived by clients. Yes. Yeah. It's a heavy burden. And yeah. I, I, again, I don't think that there is any two ways about this. I know that you know, we, we had also planned on talking about how to kind of <laughs> make it fun and be able to, you know, do this successfully. And I think, look, at the end of the day, we do have to acknowledge that we are within a system that isn't set up to protect or benefit psychologists. We're in a system that is set up to protect and benefit clients. Yes. And that's absolutely fine when you think about proper health complaints that could be made against us. But at the end of the day, it also diminishes our ability to be human. I agree. And we'll get onto the positive stuff in a moment. And maybe this can be the segue. So I found a study that was published in 2016, and it's called Client Discovery of Psychotherapist Personal Information Online. Very relevant to what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah. So it involved 332 psychotherapy patients who had found their clinicians' personal information, professional information, or both in the course of their online activities. And interestingly, like we might be like, oh gosh, it would have been terrible, but they reported neutral or even positive experiences and some reported negative experiences. But are you interested to know why clients were doing this? Because we Google everyone. Uh, yeah. Don't we Google everyone? <laughs> I mean, like. <laughs> There's a table here in the article, which is the title is Reasons for Searching. The number one, can you guess the number one reason? Because I can. <laughs> Just curious. Right, yeah. exactly. So that's 81.2%. And then the next one wanted to know whether they had a web presence. It seemed like a one-sided relationship, so they wanted to know yes. a bit more. They wanted to know therapist marital status, whether they had children. Ugh. Yeah, I know, icky. Whether we had friends in common, whether they were a group member of a group with which I identified, their sexual orientation, um, their religion, their political affiliation, whether they were oh. in addiction recovery, seven people, 3.5%. Wow. Yeah. They want relatability. They do. Clients want relatability. Yeah. So they said that one of the common themes that came out was that one participant noted, it helped me to hold onto a sense of her between sessions. So they also would ask if they also would search information if they said that the therapist did not answer personal questions that they had asked in session. So I guess they wanted to connect with the therapist. Look, I, I understand that to some extent. And to be honest, I mean, I don't think that what, what this research tells me is there probably are a lot of therapists who struggle with therapist face. Yes. This idea of having a therapy personality or a therapy voice or being tabula rasa in session and not being able to bring even just a little bit of themselves or their personality to session. And I think that if we can, if we can bring that little bit of authenticity to our sessions, then perhaps it's going to lead to less of this invasive um, searching or scrutiny from our clients. Having said that though, I mean, I did very early on in my career have a little bit of a stalker issue oh. with an ex-client, uh, which was not fun. Um, and so I think that that's also added to my real dislike of risk uh, because I do think that anything that we do put out there, people are going to search for it. They are going to Google us. I think it's actually really good practice to regularly Google our own names sometimes um, and see what other people have written about us or put out onto the interwebs. Um, and so there are from, from the receiving end of it, it, it's not a pleasant experience. And I think that if we can mitigate that risk by being, again, really discerning and really deliberate about how we're interacting with social media and how, who we want to be on different social media platforms, I think that that's going to at least give us that little bit of a sense of control and give us a little, it takes away a little bit of that uncertainty as well. Yeah. And I'm sorry that happened to you. I can, completely it makes a lot of sense why you would have that risk averse at risk adversity now but I guess like you know we're all we are all at risk of that uh, and that is just the reality of our profession you know I've spoken to lots of other psychologists who have had similar experiences and actually worse experiences than what I had and I think at the end of the day 
all that we can end up doing is managing our own boundaries. We can't help what other people do. Like other people are going to make their own decisions and they are going to be choosing to do whatever it is that they want to be doing. But all that we can do is be, again, really choosy about what we're putting out there. Well, this comes to how we can do this well, potentially. So I'm not saying that I do it well, but this is how I've been handling it because with the Mental Work Podcast, I've got a public page that I post on. Um, it's not completely non-professional, but it's a bit more than the tabula rasa, I guess. And I do talk about myself in the podcast. So I haven't actually shared it with my clients. I'm not like, welcome to your first session. Did you know I run a podcast? Um, <laughs> um, right, yes. Yeah. Um, great opener. Um, so no, I don't say that to them. But I had one client who looked uh, me up out of curiosity. They noticed the podcast. And then I asked them if they had any positive, negative or any feedback that they wanted to give me because, and they were actually confused by the question. I was like, yeah, sometimes people look stuff up and they can, you know, it can be a bit negative. So, you know, just wondering how that landed for you. So I'm of the view now that if clients bring it to me, I'm not going to be like, oh God, and like have a vomit reaction in my mouth. I'm going to be like, you know, how did this land for you? Let's talk about this. Are you needing, do you feel like you're insecure about our relationship and that I'm I'm not giving you enough here. What's that like in your other relationships? Blah, blah, blah. Um, So that's how I I like that. Yeah. I like that because it feels like you're validating firstly the fact that they need to have that sense of connection and that it shouldn't really... To, I mean, to a large extent, it's always going to be one-sided, but they still need to be reassured that there's a human on the other side of things, right? And so I think that there is definitely benefit in being open and asking for that sort of feedback. I have no issue now in, you know, where I am in my career at the moment, being able to ask for that sort of feedback. I think that when it kind of comes out of the blue that, oh, you know, I've looked you up and I found X, Y, Z. It's sort of like, okay, well, that's fine. You're not the first person to do this. And I think that also helps with my sense of ownership over aspects of my identity. So in some of the categories that you mentioned earlier from that study, I'm on a list of professionals who work with LGBTQIA plus individuals. I'm also on a on a list of psychologists who work with poly and ethical non-monogamy people um, and also on BIPOC um, community lists as well. And the reason why I choose to be on the lists that I am is I can say I've had lots of experience working with these sorts of communities. I also happen to identify as being queer. I also happen to identify as being a person of color. And this is something that like, if you meet me, you're probably going to go, oh, yeah, I see that. Great. Okay. <laughs> and having that being part of my identity that I own, I'm absolutely happy to share that. That doesn't necessarily mean we're going to delve into any sorts of details about any of these sorts of things, but even saying to somebody, this is how I identify and how I come across, or I'm a feminist. That means I'm fairly left-leaning in my politics. I have no issue with saying those sorts of things if it connects me with clients who are going to then feel as though we have a good rapport and they feel as though they are more comfortable working with me. So in the cases of clients for whom that's important to them, like they want a queer therapist and they identify as queer themselves, like that would be a perfect totally. match. That would be a positive discovery of online information. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I was curious, Sarah, as you were talking about one of the things that I know that you do quite a bit is like you've appeared on television and national programs in the newspaper. And I'm wondering, has anybody ever brought this up to you? And if so, how would you handle it? Or if they haven't brought it up to you, how would you? I've had lots of people bring it up because Mindscape, my practice, we share all of these sorts of things on our socials. Um, I'm fairly fine with sharing all of these sorts of things on um, the website, all of those sorts of things. And I guess it's it's kind of neither here nor there. I think maybe early on when people would come to me and say, oh, I heard you talk about this particular topic and I really engaged with it. I'm really glad that you spoke about it. I'd be like, great, that's wonderful. So tell me a little bit more about, again, like you were saying, how did that land for you? How does that sit with you? And I think that being able to 
put it back to the client who's sitting in front of me and the therapeutic relationship that I have with them. It's not about me at the end of the day, right? As the therapist, it's not about me. It's kind of like, yeah, that's cool. I'm glad that you saw it. What did you think? How How is that relevant for you? How did that land with you? How does that sit with you? If I put it back onto them, it's kind of fine. Yeah, it is. And then it becomes something for us to discuss. And I might be like, you know, it made me feel really uncomfortable when I noticed this view that you had. Let's talk about that. That's great stuff. Absolutely. To yeah. What does Absolutely. it feel like to know that I share a different view to you? Yeah. I've actually never encountered that because I really do get to work with a lot of the clients <laughs> who I enjoy working with. Um, but yeah, I can imagine that if I did have, I mean, I'm thinking back to, you know, pre-pandemic and I had a, a really interesting client who um, also happened to be a Trump supporter. Um, that became a really interesting topic of conversation. Also therapeutically, but just being able to, for her to say, well, you know, I saw you talk about X, Y, Z, and I disagree with them. Like, okay, cool. So how does that affect our relationship? How does that affect your therapy? And she was like, it's fine. It doesn't bother me. I'm like, great. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> but like, glad you checked. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So Sarah, let's move on to how psychs can navigate the concerns associated with social media. So I guess maintaining professional boundaries, not breaching client confidentiality, being aware and culturally competent, um, not going contrary to public health messaging and not advertising. Um, how can they navigate these concerns whilst maximizing the pros of social media? Oh my gosh. So that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, Sorry. <laughs> I, I mean, let, let, let's start from the beginning. You know, I, I think that first of all, we need to understand that as health professionals, we actually bear quite a lot of influence and we bear a lot of responsibility for the well-being of sometimes very, very vulnerable individuals and communities. And I think what that means is when we do have lives and we need to have lives outside of our jobs, we are going to potentially influence or impact on people around us just by virtue of the status of our profession. And that is something that we do need to be keeping in mind when we, again, very consciously decide how we're going to come across in particular spaces. So when we are going to be choosing to enter into different platforms and different types of social media, being able to say, this is who I want to be when I enter that space and holding on to a bit of that really heavy responsibility that we do hold to say, you know, I am going to be the best kind of person that I can be on this day, on this platform. And I think that that is often really unnatural because sometimes we just want to, you know, make a really quick Instagram reel and vent about a shitty experience yeah. in a restaurant. Yeah, totally. Right. But is that then going to reach the wrong people and potentially open us up, us up to other risks that other people in other professions don't have to confront? Yeah, it's, I think it comes back to it being a heavy, heavy responsibility, but an important one. And something that I've learned over the years of being an early career psych, like the first time I recommended a book for my client and they were, came back and they were like, I bought it and I've read it the next session. I was like, oh crap, like somebody listened to what I said, like, <laughs> bless. Yeah. And, but it's like, you don't realize the influence that you have. And it's like, I'll say stuff and clients will do it. And sometimes they don't, yeah. but when they do, I'm like, for oh, sure. Jesus Christ. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um and so like I do it's have true. I do have a lot of influence and it's um and it's wielding that that power and influence in a good way. Um so for example, I posted on a health insurer Facebook page once because one of the things that really gripes me in just terms of social issues is that the oral contraceptive, it's only PPS subsidized for contraceptive purposes, but women who experience endo or um PMDD, so premenstrual dysphoric disorder they have to have specific pills that help with their hormones. And these pills can cost about $100 and they're not subsidized. So it's oh, ridiculous. And so I would really love the 
the PBS subsidy to be expanded towards these conditions, these recognised conditions where different sorts of pills help and they're not just for contraceptive purposes. Um, and so I wrote something on a health insurance provider's Facebook page about that and I was very careful with like, you know, if somebody came across this, would I be proud of this? And like it took a while but I felt like it was important to say it and I felt like if somebody looked upon this, I wouldn't bring the profession into disrepute. And I think that what you just said there about would I be proud of it is really just a general rule that we should all be doing anyway when we're engaging on social media, right? Like we don't want to be contributing to online pylons yes. of particular <laughs> individuals or topics, yeah. right? We don't need to be getting into Facebook comment section arguments. No, we which don't. I've got to say, I'm totally guilty of, you know, <laughs> we all are, Sarah. We all are, Sarah. I've, I've really, really tried hard to not recently, but I guess it's kind of that thing of, you know, do I need to be contributing to this or can I just tap out? Can I walk on by? Um, and if I'm going to write a comment, I might reread the comment. I might go, you know what, just select all delete. Or if I do want to post it, is it something that I would be proud of if, someone who I loved or care about or respected saw it? Um, or would I be proud of it if a client saw it? Um, and I just come back to the comment that you posted. I think advocacy is so important. We are going to want to advocate for stuff that is important to us, that yeah. means something to us, and that can help various social causes or yeah. health causes. And I think that we do need to be able to advocate. But just on that as well, did you know that there was a rule that said that psychologists are not allowed to partake in active protests? No, I did so, not. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So apparently um, if we were to have placards saying that we protested a particular thing, then that could result in a notification or um, a complaint through APRA. So we are not allowed to pick it. You know what wow. I mean? And so this is this is where it becomes a really, really challenging thing because if we aren't allowed to protest, if we don't as psychologists have the right to protest, then do we have the right to advocate? And then stepping further back, do we have a right to even exist in the world or on social media platforms? Wow. I didn't know that. And my immediate reaction is I don't like it. No, I don't like it either. Because <laughs> um, I guess like when I think about it, I'm like, I actually think protesting is a human right, like being able to publicly, 100%. being able to agree with um, government and oppose things, you know, peacefully. Yeah. And so I don't know, that seems really wrong to me. It is. But again, these are the kinds of rules that seem very, very out of step with the profession, with individuals, with causes, with the world. So other healthcare organizations, for instance, nurses are able to protest because they're unionized. We're not unionized. There is no such thing as a psychology union and they have the right to do that. And it's protected for them under their right as part of their union we have no such protection. And so with things like APRA governing our ability to protest or to speak our minds or speak an opinion that might be not necessarily a popular opinion um, or it might even go against um, what could be seen as a popular opinion, that is where we could potentially land into some hot water. Mm. Troubling. So I don't... I don't like any of this, no. just to be very, very clear. <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't know how to change it. I do know, though, that we have to keep talking about this. We yeah. have to keep saying that these rules and these guidelines that govern our profession are not, they're not inclusive. They're mm. not human. They don't allow for or respect the humanity of the professionals within the profession. Yes, I agree. I agree that we need to keep on talking about it because I think we need to keep on saying, look, we want to show up in these spaces in this way and we're finding that it's quite restrictive, the, the oversights. So of course, we agree that patient confidentiality and privacy is paramount, but we also want to be able to say protest or educate and use social media as a good vehicle to achieve that. That's right. Because there are That's really right. good 
accounts who do that. Like one of my favorite Instagram accounts that I follow is Smarter in 60 Seconds. Oh, I love her. I love her too. Lara she's Armani. Yeah, she's, she's so fantastic. Great. She's amazing. Um, and she posts like just really insightful videos and she gets all sorts of different perspectives and diversity. It's wonderful. But I just wonder if she was a psychologist, would she be on the receiving end of a notification because she's espousing things that are a little too left field? Look, probably. And I think that there is, it's interesting the way that our profession is progressing because there very much is a sense of, you know, what is, what is the progressive future nature of what our profession could be and the different viewpoints and moving away from traditional mechanisms or systems within psychology. And on the other hand, there is definitely a push to lock it all down. Mm. There is this idea of conformity and, you know, bringing everything back to evidence-based gold standard X, Y, Z. And that framework doesn't allow for progress and expansion. I just want some humanness, just a little bit. A little bit would be nice. A little bit goes a long way. It's like, (laughs) it's like, I feel like I'd be very unhappy if I was just beige and neutral. Like I'm a colorful person. I like color and I know you like color as well. Thank you. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it just makes me, I just imagine like a dystopian like city or something in black and white and everybody's got their briefcases and heads down. And I'm like, oh gosh, that's my idea of hell. It really is. It really is. And look, I worry about, I worry about the worry, to be honest. I worry that we as a profession are locked in a pattern of anxiety and fear of clampdown and fear of complaints and fear of big brother. All of these sorts of things are incredibly crippling for us. We don't then feel like we can express ourselves or be the professionals or just be the humans that we want to be. And And that feels not like the kind of profession that I want to keep advocating for and the kind of profession that I want to keep working in, you know, for the next 20 probably plus years. Same. And something that I recently um, just was discussing with my supervisor and that they told me was that something along the lines of like, Bronwyn, when we make ethical decisions from a place of anxiety rather than, I guess, clinical reasoning, we're at risk of making poorer decisions. So I think it's true that we can... We, we are a profession, I think, plagued by fear and anxiety about, you know, APRA and about these complaints and how are we going to stick in these rules. And I think it can lead to anxiety-based decision-making, which could potentially lead to poorer outcomes for ourselves and for our clients. Absolutely. I worry about clients getting standardised you know, just in the box treatment and not actually getting their needs met by fellow humans. Mm. And I'm worried about the humanness, the peopleness being taken away, being taken out of our profession. You know, there's been a lot of talk about AI replacing different professions. And I, I was actually quoted in an article not that long ago about things like chat GPT, people turning to these AI chatbots and having conversations with them as though they were talking to a therapist because they couldn't afford therapy. Now, this is absolutely devastating, right? And so being able to say, no, the thing that differentiates going to see a therapist from talking to an online chatbot is the fact that you're connecting with another human. And that connection with another human is paramount to everything that we do. It is central to everything that we do. So if we take that away, What's the point, really? I mean, 100%, you know, just basic Rogerian principles. It's like the genuineness, the authenticity. These yes. are the things that clients come back to us for. Exactly. They don't come back because you made a beautiful verbal spiel or something. It's no, like they, they come didn't back. come back because I challenged their yeah. thoughts so yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that CBT strat you did last time, Sarah. It was a really good reframe, Broadway. Yeah. <laughs> Never heard it. It's like the feedback that I do get from my clients is like, I feel like you care about me. You care about my needs. Exactly. And you show up for me. 
Exactly. And how can we show up for our clients if we're not showing up for ourselves? And that also means, can we engage with our passions outside of the therapy space? Can we be a whole human person? And you know what? Be able to share that with friends or family or people that we care about on our social medias. That's a really tricky question. I would like to see that in the future. You know, maybe I will want to start a carpentry business and build delightful wooden toys for children. I think you should. <laughs> and like, if I want to do that, I want to promote it on the socials. Like, yeah. I, well, I that's hope, the thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I started a side hustle, which I actually called oh, the jewelry. side hustle. Yeah, my jewelry. Yeah, I love but it. There's no connection to me and there's no connection to pictures of me or it can't be linked back to me in any way. And that was the kind of decision that I made that kind of went, I have to do this out of self-protection. I yeah. have to do this out of mitigating risk. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that is unfortunately the kind of line that we have to keep treading. I agree. Hmm. You've given me a lot to think about, Sarah. I think this has been like a conversation, you know, we've given some practical tips, but it's really just been quite thought provoking. And I think this is a space to watch in the future. Like, what do you think? I think so too. And as we're actually talking, I'm thinking about the AAPI conference that's going to be coming up oh, in yes. March of next year. Stoked. And so stoked. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. <laughs> First inaugural um, conference. But one of the things I would absolutely love to talk about is the future of the profession. Me too. And, you know, different ways that the profession is progressing and moving forward that are outside of the therapy space that are outside of traditional models and frameworks of CBT and the DSM and all of those sorts of things. And this is the kind of thing that we need to keep talking about in those sorts of public forums. 100% agree. Very excited for the conference and listeners, if you want to sign up for it next year, I think, you know, we'll having registrations open in a few months. It'll be great. Yes. So good. I'll be there. I'll be there. I think so. I'll be there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I've put it in my calendar already. I've blocked out the space. So so it's already in the works. (laughs) I'm already looking at hotels. It's great. Oh, wow. You're already one step ahead of me. Okay, I'll get onto that. (laughs) Well, Amazing. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast again. It's always wonderful to have your insights and both like professional and personal. It's, It's a real delight. If listeners want to find out more about you, where can they find you? You can head over to the socials. (laughs) So my practice is at Mindscape Psychology. I also have a website, which is mindscapepsychology.com.au. And on there, I think there is um, one of the pages that has all of the episodes I've done with you, Bronwyn, and other stuff that I've done in media. Um, And I've done a bunch of stuff in media just of late. So if you want to have a look at any of that stuff, it's all on there. Um, And yeah, if you want to chat any more about it, I'm happy for anyone to reach out and drop me a line and say hi. Fantastic. I'll pop those links in the show notes. Thank you again, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Bron. Thanks listeners for listening. Have a good one and catch you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. Podcasts are pretty tough and it's really hard to get the word out there. So there are a couple of things you could do to really help us out. One, leave a review. Second, consider sharing the podcast with your peers. We would love you for it. Thanks for listening and see you next time.